the point is that you become aware of how engagement or activity is always part of the emergence of your spatial temporal experience. And that especially if you talk about plunging into life or experiencing what life is, it is about keeping those senses open and challenging yourself to become anew uh, and practice anew every day again. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here exploring slow approaches to creative thinking and practice aim to awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. The podcast is produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Renska Maria van Dam, a PhD architect and practice-based researcher who develops and tests strategies for unbalancing the norms of spatial experience, and in so doing, aims to open up new fields of sensing and being in space. Renska engages in this research all over the world, and today she's joining me from The Hague here in the Netherlands. Renska, welcome to AI Murmurings, and thank you for making time to be here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation and your warm words. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our yeah, conversation. Me too, me too. <laughs> I'm so there's so much I want to ask you about, and I'm I'm excited also about different ways that I think AI and machine learning could benefit from your research. Um, but let's start with the basics. Your work calls for a fundamental shift in the way we conceive and construct the built environment, from an architecture of objects to an architecture of reciprocity. And that notion of reciprocity for you comes directly from Japanese architecture, which has been a main focus of your research, certainly your PhD research. And you differentiate really between the Western approach, a kind of more materialist and constructive or planned approach to the way that Japanese architects do it differently, or Japanese space is maybe conceived differently? Yes, for me, the most inspiring thing I've learned from Japanese architecture is different from how my architectural education was structured, is a different way in uh, approaching space or thinking about the concept of space. Mainly, I was taught to think of space as something that's empty or you discuss space uh, in terms of the objects that are surrounding the space and the emptiness in between is not conceived as 
uh, important or relevant to the spatial experience. But if you look at this from another perspective, in such a way that you see this emptiness as filled with movement or uh, performativity in this emptiness, suddenly your whole spatial experience comes alive in a different way. And your sensitivity to space or your approach to space becomes activated in a different way. Mm. Yeah, specifically, you've been working with the Japanese spatio-temporal interval known as Ma. Could you maybe explain what Ma is? Ma is a Japanese concept, spatial-temporal concept that usually is translated as gap or in-between or in-between space or could also be in-between mm. time. Mm. Um, but this doesn't fully reflect the preciseness or the potential of the concept um, because it more uh, refers to the movement that happens within a gap, mm. the activity mm. within a gap. You can, you can think of this as the, the character for Ma is actually a sign for a door with sun or moonlight streaming through the door. So it's mm. not a gap between the door, but yeah. the sun or the moonlight activating the potential of this gap. The Japanese character shows yeah. that. That's so interesting. Yeah, and you say, I choose to work with and in the gap. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that gap is not just this emptiness or this space in between, but it's this moment, as you say, this moment of kinetic and kinesthetic mm -hmm. movement that the gap allows for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for me, this is the shift between focusing on the architectural object or focusing on the reciprocity, which is emerging from this activity within space. Yeah. You say that you've had several close encounters with Ma. <laughs> yeah. And you actually talk about one of those in the early pages of your PhD dissertation, which for me was a really clear illustration of what you um, perceive and understand Ma to be. I'm wondering if we could revisit the experience now. I'm talking about when you were on Naoshima Island. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 Which is one of the so-called art islands in the Seto mm -hmm. Inland Sea of Japan. Um, what what did you see and what did you experience? Yeah, for me, I think I think the first time I heard the concept of Ma was quite early in my architecture studies. And uh, this was actually the second time I was in Japan. So I was familiar with the concept already for quite some time. Hmm. But I, I clearly remember this moment and I was walking around and you see here a pavilion built and there's a kind of glass stairway uh, and just before the stairs reach uh, the platform there's this kind of gap but mm. you can you can clearly see the movement within this gap and there was this like aha moment where you really think oh now I have a true experience also of this concept that already lives with me for so long and now I can start uh, explaining also this experience to other people. Yeah. Because sometimes it's really hard to share. But then if you start to collect these concrete experiences, it becomes much easier. 
yeah. uh, to talk about it. So. Yeah, and that's what I felt in reading about it. And I have to mention that this stair or this um, shrine was designed or redesigned by the artist Hiroshi Sugimoto, whose approach, I must say, is just sort of brimming with slowness. And I've been a fan mm-hmm. for such a yeah. long time. And you wrote of that experience, this gap in the stairs, this gap is not empty, but filled with energy. Yeah. This is how I would it. Or, or it's also a moment where movement and pause are standing still are at the same time. So it's this this place where a paradox becomes possible, or also where you can experience something we would normally conceive as uh, a paradox. Yeah. yeah. You also call that gap or ma full emptiness. Yeah. That's a way, but that's also uh, an easy or kind of accessible way, I I think, for Westerners to start understanding this. Because this uh, reference of full emptiness is used more often to explain also Chinese uh, conceptions of the void. Or Hmm. um, even maybe in quantum physics, uh, people start to talk about these kind of full experiences of emptiness, let's say, like that. Mm. Um, but to be honest, I've never, I, I never, if I experienced this for me, it's mainly about movement. Yeah, right, right. It's not only about knowing that the gap is filled with energy, it's actually experiencing the energy and the way that you do that is through movement. Yeah. I was thinking about my personal experience and why in my personal experience of space movement is so important. And then I have to uh, think about these moments I had before actually studying architecture. These are the moments where where a spatial experience actually moves you. So it's mm. not only a kinetic movement. You're not just walking through space, but also where you feel activated mm. uh, by the spatial experience. And I more and more start to understand how there is no experience and there is no knowledge without movement. And we also, in uh, recent cognitive sciences, uh, more and more we come to these conclusions and these insights um, that there's not such a thing as just your mind interpreting like objects around you. You need to have uh, an embodied and an active movement in order to experience or come up with these experiences. So in that sense, both my personal fascination and the advanced uh, insights in the sciences start to correlate. Yeah, the embodiment (laughs) hypothesis from psychology and cognitive science, which is, I mean, um, amazing that it's only officially from 2005 that they started to say that cognitive experience is grounded in our physical experiences, that it's the body beyond the mind that actually makes cognition what it is. But I want to go back just to this. Well, you talk about the different rhythms and perspectives that are Mm -hmm. present in Japanese architecture, but you also Mm -hmm. talk very much about the need to, um, or or your desire to cross-pollinate Western, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. and Japanese approaches that you say something like you're not, it's, you're not trying to find an antidote to uh, Western architectural traditions. You actually just in your research are developing what you call a new spatial habitus. Um, 
that could include these collective spatial mm-hmm. scenarios. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you give maybe an example of that? If I think of examples, I really immediately fall back on the work of Arata Isuzaki and also uh, is a Japanese architect and also yeah. um, uh, Pritzker Prize winning architect, uh, yeah, one of the most yeah, and yeah, urbanist yeah, yeah. and theorist. Yeah, very famous yeah. guy in Japan and worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was also my main inspiration for my research. And he is also the one who, on the one hand, introduced the Japanese concept of ma to uh, the European and American uh, art and design scene. Mm. But on the other hand, who also immediately said, um, I introduced this now because I see potential resonances and openings for cross-pollinated ways of working with this. Actually, speaking of Arata Isozaki and cross-pollination, you also told this wonderful story of watching the sunset from the rooftop of Arata Isozaki's home, which you said was lost in translation, transforming into found in encounter. <laughs> can yeah. you can you tell what happened? Actually, I think it was about two or three months before he uh, was received the Pritzker Prize. Mm. Uh, he invited me to one of his residences in uh, Okinawa and I visited him for uh, it was I think over three hour conversation on Ma mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> after this yeah and, but we were both pretty tired after three hours of yeah. intense conversation and then he invited uh, me to his rooftop for to see uh, sunset and somehow I was there on the roof and then you know after this intense intellectual conversation and you experience sunset um, I really started to understand or have deeper levels of understanding of what this concept means when the sun moves through the door so for me it started to be very much about alignment between different rhythms It's not only about my moving body, it's also about the moving cosmological bodies, let's say. Like Like the sun, you mean? Like the sun, yeah. Yeah. And then totally different rhythms align. Uh, Yeah, you you call it attunement. Yeah, exactly. And you actually said about that experience that movement within your body was activated by your wish to attend to the sun. Yeah, this is how I started to understand or feel this relation more or what, mm. what the character actually means and mm. how you are not, how I am also moved by the movement of the sun. I mean, this is, if you think about it, it's, it, it's so clear. I mean, we wake up when the light comes up and we go to sleep when the sun goes down. So our whole yeah. life is actually organized like this. But then, Maybe also living in a modern city, different patterns start to appear. So then sometimes you need these moments of reminder to be reminded of it. Somewhere 
I heard you say the built environment is our collective unconscious. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? For me, it works like this. If you if you truly continue thinking about um, the implications of uh, what we now call the um, uh, embodied and active embedded extended and affective approach to cognition, um, which basically means that all cognitive processes don't solely happen in your head, but you need uh, both your body and an environment to hmm. even produce knowledge and experience. If you think about it like that, it means that uh, what I'm thinking and what I'm experiencing is also in the built environment. You think together with your environment, let's say it like that. Yeah. And um, we are not aware of this. So it, it happens uh, subconscious, unconscious. And through my research, I have been engaging in different movement practices through which I became more aware of this and more aware of how tiny, I don't know, I call, I always call this tiny perceptions, how slight differences in temperature or in texture or all these small things you get from the built environment actually mm. uh, helps me to to form knowledge, with to form experience. So this is why I say the built environment is our collective unconscious. Yeah, but you also talk more generally about how we design the environment or the built, you know, the human mm-hmm. constructed environment. And then at the same time, those environments configure or reconfigure yeah. us, us, who we are. Yeah, and their very structure yeah. configures who also potentially we will become. And these technologies these days that permeate our lives do the same things. They are reconfiguring who we are. Mm-hmm. They're part of that constructed environment that is yeah. strongly influencing our collective unconscious and how we understand the world. And again, potentially who we could become in the future. So from that understanding, you actively work on what you call unsettling architectures. Mm-hmm. So maybe it would be instructive for the listener first to go back and have you talk about as an architect, as a situated environmental Mm -hmm. researcher, say something about what you've called these normative standards in architecture or what you among many others call comfort architecture. Could you explain what comfort architecture is? And then we'll talk about why we need to unsettle it. I think this goes also a little bit back to my own architectural education again, where I've learned to design for function or for efficiency which immediately also reduces diversity um Mm -hmm. although we are we are taught how to come up with complex projects this mainly refers to complex functionality these are standards that came up after the world war that we need to reconstruct in an efficient Mm -hmm. way a lot of housing and i don't say this is bad uh, not at all, because it was very needed and helpful at that point in history. But it also kind of, how do you say it? It closes potential other uses and other forms of interaction yeah. with the environment. That That is why it's comfort architecture, because it don't, doesn't challenge you. Yeah, so in response to that, you propose these unbalancing 
procedures. Mm -hmm. And I know that your research has been really fortified by the visionary work of Arakawa and Gins. That's uh, Shusaku Arakawa and Madeline Gins. They were interdisciplinary artists and speculative architects, perhaps best known to any listeners for their architectural body reversible destiny project, which was this idea that architecture could be a tool to extend life, if not evade death. But moreover, they believed in architecture as an evolution accelerator and they were adamantly opposed to these standardized spatial experiences. I mean, that for them was the what brought death on more rapidly or was. <laughs> yeah. right? So could you explain maybe about Arakawa and Gins and this their goal of kind of of throwing us off balance, which became an important part of your own procedurals, as you call them? Well, this duo, it's basically a philosophical endeavor they were doing philosophy and art and then came to the conclusion that um if you want to figure out what a human being is or does if you want to think about this philosophically you can't approach this kind of questions without involving the body and the environment uh, itself mm -hmm. so for them philosophy became architecture yeah they take what you've just been saying that uh, this kind of reciprocity between I know the, the environment is designing us and we, we design the environment, uh, like both architecturally, but also with all the technology we have right now, mm. they take it a step further and they say, okay, like the normal tools or the comfort tools that are made up until now, um, are just to help you do something or achieve something. Mm -hmm. But our form of architecture is actually uh, made to extend the sensorium. Mm, extend the sensorium. Yeah. yeah. And they go as far as to say, okay, if you do it right, you don't have to die. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, so, it's so regenerative. Yeah, I mean, their point yeah. was, right, that we should be constantly challenged, that this comfort architecture or comfort, even the comfort of home is this kind yeah. of numbing of our capacities to be alive and to be engaged yeah. in the world. And they thought we should be just continuously stimulated. And yeah, they did have a lot of paper projects or speculative mm -hmm. works, but they also did build several environments to yeah. demonstrate the posi their position on this. Um, one of the first was already built in 1995. Um, in Gifu, Japan, a, a park called Site of Reversible Destiny. Mm -hmm. And then 10 years later, they built the first of two residential structures, um, one in Tokyo and Reversible Destiny Lofts Mitaka um, in memory of Helen Keller and the Bioscleave House Lifespan Extending Villa mm -hmm. in East Hampton, New York. And you, Renska, spent time in both of these yes. environments, which no surprise, Arakawa Gin said it's the only way to truly understand their philosophy was to actually mm -hmm. live it and live it physically mm -hmm. and ground it in that physicality. So can you maybe for the listener just explain like you enter Bioscleave House and what do you see <laughs> or feel? Um, very, very colorful. And if you enter Bioscleave House, you're immediately challenged by a uh, an 
yeah, how can I explain this? It, the floor, it looks like an enormous pile of sand, I want to say. Mm. It's, it's, there are all kinds of uh, small bumps and you really have to climb uh, to make your way through the whole villa. There are some holes uh, throughout the environment that help you actually climbing through so you don't mm. fall. And then there is a kind of central space uh, in which there is a kitchen that also has its own ex- instruction of use. And around that, there are several rooms that each have their own uh, yeah, ways of uh, dealing with it mm. or encountering with it. Didn't I hear you say something about there's a door on the ceiling? Uh, yeah, that, that's in the reversible destiny. Oh, that's in, the, uh, in Japan. In, in Japan, yeah. yeah. In Bias Clave, you need to hang your clothing on the ceiling. So it's very much about also making your own space each mm. day new. And also when you live there, there's a little box with, let's say, 20 uh, instructions for use that invite you to engage with the environment every day in a new way. So it's challenging. It's uh, it's. <laughs> Yeah, you become aware of totally different ways you experience your spatial temporal environment. And um, it really opened me up to approach architecture from different ways. It, it allowed me to enter the gap. I started to be able to enlarge, to consciously enter the gap and also enlarge it and extend it hmm. and uh, play with it. You wrote that orientation in this space is deliberately abolished. You're in these shifted walls and rotated ceilings, and um, you have to constantly reactivate your position in the space. And in so doing, I loved this, you said, or you wrote, you are drawn back into life. Because every time you have to constantly form your experience mm-hmm. again and again and the only way to orient yourself is that you have to reach out to the architecture you say you are liberated from preconceived horizons so there's this kind of emancipatory <laughs> or liberating <laughs> experience yeah of being there you're liberated not only from comfort architecture you're liberated uh, in your body mind from much more yeah even yeah. from the idea of what freedom and liberation means and how mm. that actually is experienced or not mm. because it opens up a field for play and for your own engagement to uh, look upon the things a little bit uh, differently if you are used to uh, navigate in cities and in architecture that are based on um, traditional axes or like on grids, Mm -hmm. you're very much taught to orient yourself based on this axis. So Mm -hmm. there's always a straight line to the front or to the right and you you can clearly see oh this is the north or there or not. But as soon as you start to rotate or reverse this or to uh, make a zigzagging pattern instead of a straight line. Mm. Um, your normal ways of orientation and navigation are um, turned around. That zigzagging pattern is at a Japanese tea house, for example, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that this 
this is what I see, a correlation between the work of Arakawa and Gins. Of course, Arakawa comes from Japan, so there is a... Yeah, uh, and Madeline Gins was from the United States. Yeah, they yeah. met in New York, yeah, and lived there mostly, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but then I, I, I see this also in the Japanese tea house architecture. Like your normal me- mechanism of orientation and balance in your inner ear is also based on this axis, like up, up down, uh, front, back. Uh, left right mm. and zigzagging patterns or like turning uh, placing a door not in the door frame but on the wall um, they all kind of slightly shift or rotate uh, this basic ways of orienting um, like the yeah. crawl through door of the tea house yeah, right, to exactly. access the space for example so that's very similar to what you were describing, maybe not as kind of chaotic feeling as a Arakawa Engin's uh, Bioscleave house, but that yeah. you, yeah. yeah, that it has many of the same characteristics. Yeah. 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 It, it doesn't need to be chaos in order to extend sensorium or liberate from preconceived horizons. Mm-hmm. This is always what I say, like when you're doing yoga, it's just a, a slight different position. You know, if you turn your arm or your yeah. leg a little bit, these kind of soft shifts make crucial changes in how you mm-hmm. can perceive or uh, conceive of something. You say that in such spaces or through such spatial experience, Mm -hmm. you slowly start to develop a multi-sided awareness. Mm -hmm. And that this makes you aware of your architectural body. Mm -hmm. The architectural body is also something Arakawa and Gins talked about, but what what does it mean exactly? What would my architectural body be? I would explain this in relation to what we've just talked about before. If you think about the tea house and you have to go through this really small crawl through door, the first time you do it, you you will be a bit clumsy. Mm. And then the second time you do it, maybe still a little bit clumsy, but after you know going through and through it again and again, you improve. Yeah. In this, which means that you start to uh integrate the architecture with your bodily practices yeah and i believe in a daily habitat most of these things are fully integrated yeah Uh, and then the challenge is to do it differently yeah i know (laughs) you said during the pandemic during the lockdowns when you had to stay home you built your own crawl through door in your house exactly yeah, I did. So yeah. even at a doorway you had experienced or passed through countless times suddenly became a new space to navigate or negotiate. Yeah, this was actually quite a ex- long process because I started by just hanging some objects in the door frame or placing some ropes and uh, using that for certain days until it eventually ended up in a very, uh, well, extensive intervention in one of my front doors which meant that also my visitors had to go through yeah great uh, great somehow 
Yeah. The intervention I made, you had multiple ways of going through. And I also noticed there that my body was, you know, I got better at it all the time, which for me meant also that I had to make a new intervention. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question about that because Arakawa and Gins is, um, it's really a training. I mean, they talk Mm -hmm. about, it's about breaking habits, obviously breaking the habits of standardized architecture or spatial Mm -hmm. experience. But it's, uh, so on the one hand, it's a training and it's what they call procedural architecture. Mm -hmm. And yet on the other hand, it should be constantly changed up and renewed. Mm -hmm. I believe the point is that you become aware of how engagement or activity Mm -hmm. uh, is always part of the emergence of your spatial temporal Mm -hmm. experience. Um, And that especially if you talk about like plunging into life or experiencing what life is, um, it is about keeping those senses open and challenging yourself to become anew uh, and practice anew every day again. It's so interesting to contrast this with the fact that machine learning relies on artificial intelligence's developing rich enough data sets to reliably Mm -hmm. anticipate what will happen next. So the difference between this constant confrontation of the body and challenging the intuition Mm -hmm. to figure out uh, an unexpected spatial situation, it's exactly kind of the opposite of the way uh, AIs are being trained, especially in terms of robotic uh, technologies Mm -hmm. and spatial Mm -hmm. navigation in order for machine learning to work, there needs to be reinforcement learning, which is actually what you've just talked about, like like mm-hmm. entering the tea house multiple times. And the data set has to be big enough and rich enough for it to actually mm-hmm. have an impact on how those technologies are behaving. Yeah. And so that's an interesting kind of a paradox, I think. It's like, how do we develop this what Arakawa and Gins call this adaptive flexibility, and how do we teach that also to AIs? Yeah, I don't know how most of the programs right now are structured, but if they're still built upon uh, binary coding, there's less potential for understanding things like paradox or letting two different states happen in the same time, like being uh, angry and sad at the same time, for example. Something that I always understand is a way of expanding my own way of knowledge is experiencing dual states. And in that sense, I'm always very curious uh, what are the potentials of quantum computing integrated with artificial intelligence to include more paradox and uh, dual experiences and see how we come from there. I I wanted to mention that, you know, in spite of their plans, actually, Arakawa and Gins both died um, only in their 70s. Um, And um, Arakawa first, and four years later, Madeline Gins. And after Arakawa's death, Madeline Gins apparently gave several reasons for why it had happened. And one of the reasons was too many mistakes of one kind and not enough of others. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to be just constantly challenged. Um, And when you do that, 
you do get a new sense of the body. You get an enhanced, energized experience of the body. It was for them more about evolution and living fully. Yeah, and for extending uh, what is conscious. For me, for me, it's really an acknowledgement of uh, unconsciousness mm. and how to work with that and how to broaden that and also how to think and conceive of how to approach life. And this is something that fascinates me. Like, how do we think? of life and work with life and build architecture in such a way that it's enchanting. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear about how you specifically hope to do that. Now, after having finished the PhD recently, I'm actually very much open to upscale this practice and see Mm -hmm. if I can implement it. And again, this can be as small as an intervention, you know, as, as, a, as a door somewhere in the office or somewhere or yeah. new uh, architecture studios or schools. Sometimes people ask, you know, how, do, how does this look like or how it will be? I don't know yet because you have to engage in the project before you yeah. see how this will evolve. But you've had some glimpses of what the new sense of the body could be, how our spatial experience could be reoriented differently. As I mentioned, I feel like it it offers a really provocative model for the future of AI and robotics um, if they were to allow it in. Specifically, your research could be an interesting tool, I think, to disrupt a field that's called embodied AI, which is mm-hmm. named after what you mentioned before, the embodiment hypothesis, mm-hmm. um, which is the idea that intelligences, um, as they call them, uh, emerge through the interaction of an agent, which could be a human or a a robot, in an environment and as a result of sensory motor activity. So very much like the experiences that humans have grounding in the physical world. But a lot of AI advances are coming actually from these huge data sets being collected from our computers or from people's Mm -hmm. Twitter feeds or selfies or things like this, but they readily acknowledge at the same time that this kind of data doesn't actually reflect how or or map the way that humans learn or that the way that humans really interact with the world. Yeah, it, it's interesting because when you invited me for this interview, I was thinking, you know, what would be my approach to AI? And I was like, like my way of accumulating and developing knowledge is movement. It's mm-hmm. traveling, it's exploring. So I would totally be interested in these forms of uh, embodied and situated AIs and how this would work and also how they differ from the AIs that don't have this situatedness or embodied and an active approach. And then if you want to experiment with offering them, you know, developing AIs or robo- robotic uh, AIs in, uh, in Arakawa and Gins architecture, that's, that's the next level yeah. of questioning, you know, yeah. would that bring a new or different way of knowledge? Would they also become more aware? Would they gain on-sighted awareness when they have such kind of environments? We didn't talk about 
this Japanese spatial quality called the intermediate zone. Mm -hmm. And I know that Ma is part of it. This boundary condition mm -hmm. that's partly inside and partly outside, right? Which is mm -hmm. um, which enriches or increases mm -hmm. increases the richness of architectural spaces. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. like your own sense of your body, the inner and the outer, came also from studying that? Uh, yeah, definitely, it came from that, and I think mm. this is what Maya is more or less all about, especially in its architectural context. So, Japanese architects actually make the intermediate experiential. So, they uh, borders between inside and outside are presented in many layers. So, uh, for example, layers of stone and wood and material or it's very articulated way of transitioning inside, outside, upside down. And in this way, they cut open spaces that we would say is a duality. They cut open it and they make a kind of gray zone or transition zone uh, mm -hmm. from this. And through that, of course, you can also experience the movement. But it, for me, it's similar to having 50 words for shades of green instead of five words for shade of green. They just diversify the experience and therefore it's not an opposition or a duality anymore, but becomes multiplied and there's place for many other perspectives and many other forms of experience. And I believe actually my way of navigating and my spatial experience also moves like this. And the more sensitive you get to it, the more... Uh, levels or the, the more layers you find in your own experience. Mm. I, I don't know any other way except for giving AI bodies and environments and movement to also make them sensitive to these forms of knowledge. These are provocative ideas, but in the meantime, what 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 could we do? <laughs> um, you know, rather than waiting, hopefully, for AIs to come model some of these characteristics, yeah. or and recognizing that many listeners here may never get a chance to directly experience the architecture of Arakawa Ingins. What are some things we could do right now to unsettle our lives? It can just be you know uh, change something in your environment by replacing or by obstructing or you have to climb over mm -hmm. to climb on that it, it are these really small things that make i mean i am somebody who invents my own habits all the time again and again if i have a meeting with my colleagues and we are in a big group and uh, we need to make some notes i start to make notes not on my paper, but on my drinking cup to yeah. see if, if I would make notes in a circle, if this would influence how I think about the meeting instead of making notes uh, in a linear way on my paper. 
yeah, this is how I'm always trying to experiment and see how this works. And if you want to open up new worlds of experience and action, I think these are the small things you can start mm. working with also in your daily life. So it's it's really about staying in movement rather than finding the extremes every day. Yeah. After staying for 10 days in uh, Arakawa and Gin's architecture, I came back to my cubicle office mm-hmm. and I was sitting on my normal office chair and my body felt at ease. And I was like, ah, oh, sometimes you can appreciate the norm, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not about reinventing the whole world, but it is about opening up for alternative and uh, different rhythms. I mean, let's diversify. Let's open up for all all the minor interventions and the minor voices that are not heard or seen yet. And these small interventions that change the situated norm allow for that to open up. But it is really important to do these things not Mm -hmm. only think of them but actually do it it's like when Isazaki invites me after a three-hour talk to Mm. watch sunset together um if you if we only had the talk my understanding of Ma wouldn't have been as uh I don't know valuable Mm. so that's why I very much like the AIs uh you know doing something Mm -hmm. Uh, activating them get out and then try it yeah i wanted to talk about biotopological craftsmanship (laughs) we have been talking about it but that's the term that you use um i i have to admit i still don't know that i uh, that i fully understand it um Mm -hmm. but could you maybe explain where that term comes from and why you why you use it to describe your your practice, which you say in a nutshell is this kind of organism environment reciprocity? Maybe first explaining biotopology, which was a term yeah. from Arakawa and Gins, or yeah, yeah, the biotopology is a concept from Arakawa and Gins. Um, for them, it's a description of a form of science. They say, actually, the science of life is meant to be a topology. So if you follow the implications of the embodied and active approach to cognition, you cannot think of life uh, other than by involving environment or topology. For them, it's also like biotopology is uh, their improvement of phenomenology. So building on Merleau-Ponty and going further, and where phenomenology is often still talking about phenomenons as something outside your experience, you know, it it is very experiential, but you can still separate from it. And there's still a linear approach to time uh, in the traditional forms of phenomenology. And then they are saying, uh, we're focusing now on biotopology. It's also about the here and the now. The the present uh, is both the past and the future, and they collapse and emerge from the here and now mm. in the moment-to-moment experience 
Yeah. So then, then you cannot take yourself out of the equation anymore. It's it's different from an architect making something from scratch. There's no tabula rasa anymore. There's already you are there. There's already life and a topology, and you work from within. Mm. So you have to shake from the inside in order to change uh, perspectives or come up with new knowledge. You have to shake and, from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that really resonates with how we think about the Anthropocene. Or, you know, there is no outside anymore. We, we are just totally integrated and part of it. So the only way to approach uh, any of our problems is mm-hmm. from the inside. You always have to take yourself with it. Yeah. This is my interpretation of their form of biotopology. And then I bring it over to architecture. So I make it not from a science. For me, it becomes a craft. And I think, okay, from, from this kind of philosophy, how do I move as an architect? So in fact, you t- I'm just thinking through this. You talk about movement. You talk about mm-hmm. the importance of the body and movement. But there is actually this craftsmanship is also... Um, it is kind of a making a mark. I mean, it's it is an architectural gesture. This crafting openings, and then in that way you enter this reservoir of subtle realities. Mm-hmm. You enter this space between inside and outside, um, and that the practice unfolds in that space that you also have actively or consciously kind of cut open as you say mm-hmm. or yeah. yeah yeah for me for me but for Aragara and Gins architecture my, is a, a tool to extend the sensorium for me it has also very much in this biotopological craftsmanship become a tool to set entrainment between all those different moving bodies uh, so I really see, and entrainment is a kind of synchronization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I I really see, like, if you design a window pattern that, in a certain moment of the day, uh, allows you to experience the sunlight coming through in a different way, the architectural intervention allows uh, the social bodies in the room to align with the environmental movements around there. And if you start to craft these relations of life, rather than you craft an object, but you craft relations through Mm. material interventions, that's for me what's the difference between how I was taught to do architecture uh, when I was in university and how I understand it now after studying and spending time with Japanese approaches to architecture. You actually contributed to the the book that I edited last year, Slow Spatial Reader, um, Chronicles of Radical Affection, um, published by Valise. And in your contribution, you imagine what your architectural slash art slash research practice will be like in the future and where your Atelier is sort of indoor-outdoor, and your collaborators are outside immersed in play with the wind and the soil and 
different kinds of what you call like uh, perceptual and environmental phenomena and um, where people are working somatically, working with the body, right? Testing out new spatial configurations. When you wrote about this future practice of yours, you said we've grown comfortable with deviating from the norm and opening up for the unexpected. That also through a practice. So, yeah, the first time you spent 10 days at Bioscleve House, mm-hmm. you like were very happy to return to the norm <laughs> for a while. But if you were to keep going back to Bioscleve House, you would become more and more comfortable with that mm-hmm. deviation from the norm mm-hmm. and maybe less comfortable with the cubicle, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, or less satisfied yeah. with it somehow. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. feel as alive. Yeah. And the last thing, and maybe this is a beautiful kind of note to talk about and draw this to a close, is that you wrote, we have come to a full encounter with what we used to call otherness. This means we've not only come close with the social, bio, and ecological other, but also with the unconscious the mystical and unknown other. It's beautiful. And, but what is that otherness? Yeah, this is, this very much comes from my personal encounters with Ma. And because especially for non-Japanese, Ma, is sometimes also very mystical. There is in my certain darkness that sometimes is explained in mystical terms. Um, But if you talk to Isazaki about this, the darkness is very much about being open and learning to experience. And if you're open to your own experience, there are all kinds of unconscious, mystical, uh, mythical, uh, weird. Cre- you don't. We don't know what our body and conscious from there can do. Instead of understanding this from as an as an outside force, I very much understand this as uh, emerging from your own interactions with the environment. But it's not coming from outside. But it's just happening in the here and now. Though it might surpass all ways of how we conceive of reality now is a day I, I very much believe this is part of reality and this is what i mean with coming close to these forms of otherness because it can be very weird and maybe it's scary and maybe it's dark and maybe it's uh, dirty and you don't like it mm-hmm. but it's also really beautiful and i believe that's exactly what is meant by um truly experiencing life you imagine now that you have completed your PhD and you go on uh, even more so in the world that you will continue to practice this at different scales, practice it with different mm-hmm. kinds of collaboration partners, and that um, through this you come into fuller and fuller encounter, not only with that otherness, but with life and what it is to be 
alive. Yeah. 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 I, I am not really sure what this means yet, but it doesn't matter because I have an experience of it. And that's just what I follow. Yeah. And you're committed to finding out. Yeah, definitely. Renska Maria van Dam, it has been really interesting to speak with you and hear more about your research, your way of seeing the world, the impulses and influences that have driven you forward. And I really look forward to seeing where you and your practice will go from here. Yeah, me too. And thank you again for the invitation. I always love to have these conversations. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank programming partners Anton van den Hengel, director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, and Tom Haidu, director of Sia Furler Institute, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, as well as the Dutch Creative Industries Fund for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>